0: Let the reins of government then be braced and held with a steady hand, and every violation of the Constitution be reprehended. If defective, let it be amended,
1: but not suffered to be trampled upon, whilst it has an existence. The words of General George Washington, and this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies.
0: On this episode of the podcast, we'll look at the most recent polling and what that tells us about this oh-so-very-important election. We'll look at the challenges facing the Republic this week, and in our Hot Take segment, we'll look at the return of Jeff Flake and other fun stuff and wrap with our Guardian of the Week. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. Patrick, I'll tell you one thing. I'm waiting to hear what you have to say. So I'm sure that everyone listening at home or wherever they are are waiting to. So let's get right to it. What are your thoughts?
1: Okay, everybody breathe in and breathe out. (sighs) And here are the polls. All right. So let's take a big overall picture of the polls. So right now, Joe Biden has an average national lead of anywhere from, Uh, Seven and a half to nine points, depending on what aggregator you look at. Uh, That is a significant lead that suggests even with a normal polling error, which is close to what we had four years ago, that he that's still a large enough cushion that not only will he win the popular vote, but that he should win the Electoral College as well. But that could be an Electoral College vote in a squeaker because some of these key states are still well within uh, a normal margin of error or normal polling miss, as it were. So let me back up a second, remind everybody about what happened in 2016. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things uh, that contributed to that polling miss, some of which were in the control of pollsters and some of which were not. Uh, the issues that were in control of the pollsters was this shifting uh, inclination of white voters uh, in terms of who, how they would vote based on whether they had a college degree or not. That's something that we had never seen before. Um, st- except in 2012, we started to see some inklings of it, but when Trump ran against Clinton kind of like blow, blew it all open, uh, where white voters without a college degree went significantly for Trump, white voters with a college degree went significantly for Clinton. Now, why was that split important? It was because we had too many college voters in our samples. And the reason why is we never had a really good measure in our in the voter lists about education. We, we know a lot about age and, and, and race, uh, gender, their past voting history, their party registration or their past primary voting history. But we didn't know a lot about uh, read, uh, their education. And so it ended up just naturally there being slightly more college educated voters in the samples than there should have been uh, in the electorate as a whole. So that contributed about a point or two to the overall error. Uh, So now you remember what the error was in 2016. A point or two still means that Hillary Clinton would have been ahead consistently in every one of these key states, Uh, just a point or two less. So what was the other part that was out of pollsters control? It was the huge volatility of the electorate. We had an electorate where close to one third uh, of, of registered voters went into the election day saying that they disliked both of the major party candidates, another phenomenon that we hadn't saw, we've seen before. So what did these voters do? Well, up until the point of the week before the election, they were slightly more inclined to vote for Clinton. Then, 10 days before the election, the Comey letter comes out It reminds some of these voters why they disliked Clinton. So in the last stretch, they disliked Clinton a little more than they disliked Donald Trump. Some of them voted for Trump. Some of them who would have voted for Clinton decided to stay home. And we know this from doing an autopsy on our polling and finding that, yeah, it was a pretty significant number of folks who did made that last minute switch and an even more significant, I found, especially in Pennsylvania, of these Democratic voters in rural parts of Pennsylvania who said that they couldn't vote for a Republican, would vote for Hillary Clinton if they had to. But since, you know, the polls were all showing that Hillary Clinton was ahead they didn't need to go out and vote. She didn't need their vote, and they didn't want to go out and do it, and all their neighbors were voting for Trump anyway, so why bother um, And they stayed home? So that all made up that, that uh, error. Huge so, swing. Right. So this year – so in 2018, we took care of some of that issue with the, with the education voting. 2018 polls were really good. So now uh, we're passing the midterm into another presidential. So we know that we're not going to get that one error, which is the education error. The other error that we're looking at is, is are things out of our control that we don't know? Are there late shifts? In 2016, we did see the polling in the last week shift away from Clinton towards Trump, but it didn't shift enough to put Trump in the lead in the polls. But the indications were that it was closing, Hillary Clinton's lead, from earlier in the month of October was closing by the time we were getting to election day. So you look for a trend. So Joe Biden's ahead right now. Are his numbers moving at all? Is Trump gaining on him? And other than uh, a couple weeks ago where, you know, Biden went from like maybe a 10 point lead in the, in the national polls to what I said was now somewhere between seven and a half and nine points. And it, but it's been holding steady now for the past Uh, seven to 10 days. So there hasn't been a lot of movement there. Uh, We're looking at some key polls that have been coming out in other states, Uh, Florida, uh, uh, Georgia, I had that out. And um, Iowa is probably the only state where we see a closing of the gap. Florida and Georgia, we're seeing uh, Biden hold steady or even gain a point or two there. Uh, same thing in North Carolina. Saw a couple polls coming out late that suggest that uh, Biden is holding steady there as well. Uh, so it all comes down to Pennsylvania. Now, the thing that's different this year is we don't have a third of the electorate who says they, this, like both party candidates, it's it's down like 10 to 15 percent. And Joe Biden has a huge lead among that, that group. And it doesn't look like they're swinging because their their opinion of Donald Trump is much more firm than it was four years ago. We also have far fewer voters, far fewer voters who are either undecided, completely undecided, or only leaning towards a candidate, um, but could change their mind, or are toying with voting for a third-party candidate. When you add up all those numbers, that's uh, significantly less than 10 percent. In many of these states, it's about 5 percent total. Uh, When we look four years ago, that number was close to 20 Uh, percent. So that's so – Again, that's why we think the polling this time around is much better. We're outside of the range in most of these places of a normal polling error. The state that I'm looking at closest right now is Pennsylvania. Sure. Pennsylvania, uh, Donald, uh, excuse me, Joe Biden is up by an average of five points. Um, they're spending a lot of effort there, and we're going to get a lot of good polls over the weekend in Pennsylvania. That will tell us whether that has been moving or not whether Donald Trump is able to move the gap. So if you see a significant shift where Joe Biden might still be ahead, but by a smaller number than he is right now, that's a trajectory which suggests that Pennsylvania could be up for grabs uh, by the time all the votes are counted. Because Pennsylvania is not, is a state where maybe a third of the electorate will have voted early. So the majority of the electorate will still are still waiting until Election Day to vote. <laughs> so it's not the banked vote that Joe Biden can count on in places like Arizona and Florida. So this is where we're looking at. These are gonna be the key states. We're pretty confident that Wisconsin and Michigan will go blue this time, unlike uh, four years ago. Uh, Nevada probably will hold, Minnesota will hold. um, A couple places that we're looking that might flip, the most likely to flip other than Pennsylvania, is uh, Arizona, uh, Florida, uh, North Carolina, potentially Georgia. So in Georgia, um, we have Joe Biden ahead. I mean, he's ahead in Georgia by a slight margin. But as we know, Georgia is one of those states where there are a lot of shenanigans about counting the vote there. Um, as, as Stacey Abrams, the uh, as, as we've talked about her on our show many times over the past year, um, lost a very close race there and probably lost it in part Because of some vagaries in how votes were counted and vote suppression. And she's been working actually very hard uh, this year to make sure that that vote gets out and gets counted. But Georgia is one of those states where there's a lot of room for political interference in the vote counting process. So um, that's one we're looking at. Other states that are on the outside looking in for Joe Biden, Ohio, Iowa and Texas. Um, I was of, of the three, I think Iowa is Joe Biden's best bet of picking up followed by Ohio. I think Texas is a long shot, uh, still, but we see Kamala Harris campaigning in Texas. And as we've talked about before, the real prize in Texas is a couple of house seats, but also the house of representatives, the state legislature, um, is there's a, there's a possibility that Democrats could pick that up and control one of the, uh, parts of the legislature, which is a big deal in terms of gerrymandering because Texas had that huge Republican gerrymander uh, 10 years ago after they took control of all branches of government. So I have this question for you, Patrick.
0: Are we accounting for the Trump voters who say Biden because they are uncomfortable admitting that they are
1: Trump voters? Those people do not exist. They do not exist. And we looked for them after twenty sixteen, figuring that that could have something to do with the polls. They don't exist. They're going to tell you that they vote for Trump. Um, you know they they don't have a problem talking with pollsters. one of the one of the things that we look at in our polls is um, who doesn't talk to us? You know who refuses to tell us who they're voting for and who are they? Um, and we don't see any demographic um, uh, information there that suggests that these are secret Trump voters. Um, in fact, we're seeing a little bit more evidence that there's a possibility of, of a small secret Biden vote in Trump country. Um, Interesting. That's yeah. the first I've heard of that. Yeah. So uh, that, and some of them are actually coming out uh, of the woodwork and actually declaring that. But uh, that was early on, was one of the things. Because remember, <sighs> The U.S. has gotten much more polarized and also much more polarized in where we live. I don't remember the numbers exactly, but Dave Wasserman, who does works at uh, the Cook uh, Political Report, he does their house forecasts for them, has noted that over the years that 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 years ago, you would find many more counties. And, you know, there's over 3000 counties in the United States, uh, many more counties where the vote was very close between Democrats and Republicans. Now you find very few of those counties. The counties are either Democrat or the Republican because people have been shifting where they move and where they live, in part based on being living with people who are like-minded in terms of politics. So what happens is you're finding if you are you know a Trump voter in, you know, in, in a blue county, you're in the you're in the deep minority and the same thing for a Biden voter in a Trump county. And what usually happens in that case is you usually keep it to yourself on both sides. Um, and you don't talk, you don't tell your, talk to your neighbors about politics and you don't put up signs, right? And you, you don't put, put up, up signs. signs. <laughs> um, so what we're hearing is that um, from my reporter friends who have been out in Pennsylvania is they've seen more, they've seen more Biden signs um, out in rural Pennsylvania and they never saw a Clinton sign out there uh so that's giving us an indication of of what's going on here i mean one of the things that we're seeing is the big number in the polling is is joe biden's uh support among white voters who are age 65 and older so the white senior vote which has almost always gone to the republican as far back as i can remember the republican has won that vote Mm -hmm. so it looks like joe biden is going to win that vote he's close in some states like florida and uh, Georgia, is well ahead in some other states like Pennsylvania and Iowa and Arizona uh, with that particular cohort. And that's those are the ones that, you know, tend to be more conservative, But and and some of them voted for change in 2016, um, but they don't like the chaos that they're seeing. So- Or the Joe COVID. Is, or yeah, the and COVID. The, yeah, right. And the, the chaos is, is really evidence. We saw evidence of this before uh, COVID hit in March, but once the pandemic hit, it kind of confirmed to these older voters that, wow, this is this is just really out of control. Um, this is not what we want from a competent <laughs> administration. And Joe Biden appeals to them in a way that maybe some of those younger or, or more left wing uh, candidates who are r- running in that Democratic primary would not have. I, I
0: agree with that also you know I'm, I'm gonna make a quick point and then ask you a question about a poll that came out yesterday that made a lot of, of yours that made quite a bit of news so one thing i want to say about texas and i i hear what you're saying about it's it's not going to it's unlikely to happen is a, a new statistic came out that said over a million new voters under 30 have voted in texas already with early voting and that that kind of suggests to me with the Beto. A uh, push that we had in 2018. That it 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 almost feels, to me, and I don't know as much as you about this, that Texas would surprise me less than Ohio in a way, um, if if Texas could could take it over. But I want to say this about Florida. Because I want to bring up Florida because you just came out with a poll that was kind of unique because you had it at 50-45 for Biden in Florida. And uh, Joe Scarborough spoke about it this morning, spoke about your poll this morning on Morning Joe and sort of said, that seems big, Um, seems big to me, too. But I'm curious because you're the one who did it. What did you see there?
1: and, And how did those numbers play out? Well, Marist, uh, another good pollster who actually works with NBC. So I w- wonder why. you um, brought up didn't, Marist
0: too because it was okay. a three-point. There was a three-point. Uh, was I think it was 49-46, uh, no. Is that correct? No, no, no. It was a. Uh, it was also five points. Okay, so five yeah. points in Florida is not insignificant. And if no. if Biden wins Florida, it's pretty much game over.
1: Pretty much game over. What did you see? And 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 what do right. you account for that? Right, so let me, I mean, Florida is going to be really important on Tuesday night, and I'll tell you why in a second. But let's talk about the polls and what we're seeing. Is that that um, Joe Biden is doing very well in Central Florida, and he's actually doing decently in Northern Florida, the rural parts of this of, wow. of the state. Wow. Um And that's I think kind of it's, it's spilling over from what we saw in our Georgia poll too, mm-hmm. is that those kind of voters out in rural parts of um, these states. Uh, and you know the pandemic is is hitting in those parts there you know it's there's a lot of uncertainty there
0: but so let me just interrupt but- for one second and ask you this question in in 2016 trump was winning those northern counties mm-hmm by I think it was like 75 25 wasn't it I mean are yeah. we talking about was it that high was it a little it was higher? Like
1: 65 65
0: 35 about and that, so about now 30 points yeah oh, is now. it just I mean still I would imagine that Trump is winning in the north of Florida yeah. but you're saying that it's dropping down to 55 58 42
1: right. is that the idea yeah then right, exactly and this okay. is this has been been Biden's strategy all along it's not not to win in these um in these rural areas, but to cut Trump's margin down by making those voters who didn't come out in 2016, and that's what you, you're talking about, a lot of new voters coming out in this, this race, by making them comfortable with, with Joe Biden as an alternative in a way that they weren't comfortable with Hillary Clinton. So he's successful at that. So yeah. that's one part of Florida. The other part of Florida that's really important Miami. is the... Yeah, the 18 percent, and not just Miami, but the 18 percent of um, or so of of voters who are Latino. They're saying
0: that the Latinos are not supporting Biden in the same way that they were supporting Hillary. Or did you, But your numbers were different. You have it at 5832 and other people have it at 5246. I was going to ask you
1: about that. Right. So that is a big difference. And, and so that, we really need to look at that one closely because the Latino vote is not a monolithic vote. So when we talk about the Latino vote in Arizona, say, we're talking about a largely Mexican-American vote. When we talk about the Latino vote in Florida, we're talking about a whole bunch of different votes. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a Cuban and vote with some Venezuelans thrown in. And the reason why I throw them in as well is these are mainly the the descendants of refugees from leftist dictatorships. And they're supporting Trump. So they're supporting Trump. But another group in um, that's very large in Florida is the Puerto Rican vote. Mm. Now, in the past, there have been more Cuban voters than Puerto Rican voters in Florida. It looks like this time around, they're going to be more Puerto Rican voters than Cuban voters. paper in Florida. towels, paper towels. And that's right. Yes. you don't throw paper towels in in San Juan after <laughs> a after a hurricane. And what happened is that, uh, huge numbers, and I can't remember the, what they estimated the numbers were, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands. I think moved to Florida Whoa. after the hurricane. So, and remember, they're Americans. So every single one of them was eligible to vote in Florida the, set, the moment that they they moved in. So, what we're looking at in our poll, and this might be, and I think this is why this is different, um, because we do a lot of controls for a Latino vote when we when we poll that. I think probably more than Maris does is um you know we're looking at their uh their ethnic uh, and uh, country of origin descriptions and so forth um and so we're finding a a very very large proportion of our latino vote are not cubans in miami but puerto ricans in central florida and that's why we have uh, joe biden doing about as well as hillary clinton did In Florida, he's not doing as well as she did among the Cubans, but he's doing really well. He's doing as well among Puerto Ricans. And since they make up a larger share of the Latino electorate in Florida this time than they did four years ago, that's why we're still showing him doing fairly well. It remains to be seen. I mean, this is the hardest subpopulation in Florida to poll accurately. And that could be the tail of the tape. Um, But I I thought it was.
0: We're going to know on the night. I mean, that that will. That's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Th- on that night, we're going to know if if Biden is is going to win that night or if it's a, or possibly whether it's going to turn into a three week long, you know, the, the fear that everyone has. Florida can end that if if by chance and it feels unlikely somehow just because of the history of 2000 with Bush versus Gore and then 2016 watching Trump take Florida. It feels unlikely that Biden's going to win if Biden wins Florida game over. I've said that before, but it's true game over and we'll be able to tell that pretty much that night, wouldn't you
1: say? Uh, yes, and here's why this is why I wanted to explain you know, th- this in terms of how the networks do on their calling uh, these races at their decision desks. Florida has a lot of experience with counting early vote because they have a lot of seniors out there so they've been doing uh, early vote and mail vote and that, st- that kind of thing um, for years now. And it's going to be higher this year, but they already start counting this stuff. So they have to report to the Secretary of State of Florida the early vote totals. Each county has to report that to the state within 30 minutes of poll closing. So we'll have all the early vote within 30 minutes. And then the Election Day vote starts coming in very quickly because it's all tabulated by machine, right? So even four years ago, And this is something to keep in mind. The early vote will show Joe Biden ahead and probably ahead by a lot. Uh, And then it will start closing as the Election Day vote starts getting count. The question is by how much. Uh, Four years ago, Hillary Clinton was ahead in the early vote as soon as the polls closed and started reporting. And then, you know, Donald Trump started creeping up. The networks were able to call Florida for Donald Trump before 11 p.m. Eastern time four years ago. And remember, you only won it by a point. And the reason why they're able to do that even before all the votes are counted is because they're looking at Election Day vote. They're looking at the number of provisionals that still are yet to be counted um, and estimating what can Hillary Clinton do to make up the difference that we're now seeing in the Election Day vote that's being reported. So they were able to call a race that ended up only being a one point difference by 11 o'clock. So if you, as you say, by eleven o'clock they're calling it for Joe Biden. Donald Trump would have to have the most unusual, unexpected path to victory at that point if he if he's lost Florida, even though we won't know the results from Pennsylvania for well over a week, probably, mm-hmm. um, just because they're they're delaying their count. Um, that we'll know enough of the other states by wednesday morning, but if if Florida goes that way there it would take some type of either miracle or some type of of widespread uh interference with the election process for Donald Trump to be able to cobble together just realistically to cobble together yeah. two hundred and seventy electoral votes I, without it, there's Florida.
0: there's just not a path i mean i've i I've, I've you know I've sat with the five thirty eight thing and done different states. I said, OK, what happens if Biden gets Florida? There's just no path for for Trump in that way. Now, there was I, I sent you a text. I, I sent you a number of text messages in your busiest time of your life this week. And you're always just like, Ian, I got to go. Don't talk to me about these pollsters. Come on, man. Come on. Be serious. And And you did lead me to a place that I want to tell everybody else about. The New York Times has something called presidential polls, live presidential polls, so if you go New York Times slash live slash 2020 presidential polls Trump-Biden, this is probably your best bet if you want to look at polls, because I know on Twitter there's political polls and, and this thing and, and that thing, and I'm just pressing, you know, reset all the time, and it drives you crazy, but what it also does is it brings up pollsters that maybe aren't quite as good, um, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but first, the economist who just came out and endorsed Joe Biden, he the, the economist puts the chances of winning the electoral college for Biden at 96% and Trump 4% chance of winning most votes over 99% for Biden and the estimated electoral college votes at 356. I wrote to you, I said, Hey, tell me about the economist. Then you went, I don't have time. I'll talk to you Friday. And then you put in something about, uh, pollsters versus forecasters. Is that in relationship to the economist?
1: Right? So, I mean, the economist does do a poll with youGov. But then they also have um, a forecaster who creates models for them that and that's those numbers that you're seeing. So if you go to them, they're they're I guess what you said, they're 96 percent. Somebody else is 99 percent. Uh, five thirty eight. Is at eighty nine percent? Eighty nine percent for five. Um, right now, I mean, they were at seventy nine percent. I mean, ninety four years ago. Four
0: is if we were playing a baseball game, the score is eight to one and it's the ninth inning.
1: I mean, here, here's the here's the problem that I have with forecasters, please. OK, so they have something. Um, so they say Joe Biden has an 89 percent chance of winning. Right. Five thirty eight. Yeah. So if he wins by. With 270 electoral votes and a two point margin on the Electoral College, or if he wins, but with 400 and some electoral votes and a 10 point popular vote margin, they're equally as right. It right. Doesn't, so, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. So that's what I'm saying is what are they actually telling us?
0: They're telling us that that Biden's going to hit 270 okay. 96% of the time is what they're saying.
1: Right. So great. But how do they know that? Because I, I, that's why I'm asking because, you. Because, for example, if I deal you, if if we have a deck of 52 cards yeah, and it's a, and it's a straight honest deck. And I deal you five cards. Mm-hmm. There's only so many combinations of five cards that you can get. And I can give you the exact probability of what those that combination will be. I bet you can. Because, why because, really good, yeah. because, yeah. because it's a finite. I can't give it to you right now off the top of my head. But there's a finite set of possibilities there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I can put every single possibility into my model and then tell you what the possibility of each outcome will be. Here's the deal. Is that we don't have a finite Possibility of outcomes in terms of things that can affect the outcome. Okay, you know, and in a deck of cards, all it is is you know the outcome can be affected by dealing the cards. Um, you know, if if you're rolling dice, the the, the outcome could be affected of is if the dice is weighted or if it's shaved a little bit off on one side, there could be all these other factors. So in an election, there's all sorts of other factors that can affect an election that that these modelers, these forecasters, have to put into their models. So Uh, Nate Silver, 538, does something. He's the uh, volatility index. And, you know, his volatility index is based on the number of uh, full page headlines on the front page of The New York Times. And he kind of puts that into his model somehow. He quantifies that. So these models are based on incomplete information. So the fact that they say this will happen 96 times out of 100 Means mm-hmm. it'll happen ninety six times out of a hundred using their models and only the things that they put in their models. If anything else yeah, I get it. that isn't in their model happens, their right. model isn't the accounting for it. So then, then, then you can't say it's ninety six. It's only ninety six percent of the time. As long as everything else that that okay. we haven't controlled but for doesn't still,
0: happen, 96. You, the Economist is throwing so much egg on their face. If it the four percent comes up, because then you can just discount well, the Economist forever, can't you? Kind of. After look, I've been calling you, and we we talk. We're friends, right? So we don't just talk when we do the show. This week it's been a little nutty, but you know I call you. I say, can you make a prediction? And you go, no, no, I'm not gonna right? I mean, let's talk about that for a second. Like, I'm not going to ask you to make your prediction. And the reason is because there's like a piece of you that is, there's, there's like an old pain from 2016. Yeah, well, I, think yeah. it's, I think it's probably true for many pollsters. What is the feeling behind that? Why is it that you're not willing to sort of put a quantitative number on it? Can you tell us the story about it? Because yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Because I mean, as as what happened is uh, in 2016 is that the narrative was wrong. When we went in in and looked at the polling, other than that education factor, there was nothing that we really could have, I mean, there are things in retrospect, if if we had the crystal ball and could have predicted how the volatility would go in the last minute, um, we we would have done it, but you can't expect us to know that. Um, The reason why polls are generally right leading up to an election is because very little happens to change from the time the poll was taken to the time of election day. So they're not actually predicting election day. It's just that election day looks exactly like what happened, what, what, what the lay of the land looks seven days before that. The poll wasn't predicting election day. It was just simply nothing happened between elec- uh, the poll taken and election day. But the reason why I, I, I say here is, is I want to convey the level of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Now, that was something that we didn't do well in 2016, is really convey the level of uncertainty. So even if you look at Nate Silver's model, and and I, and I mentioned this, I think, last week or two weeks ago on this podcast, is that, you know, three out of 10 is a pretty big chance of something happening. And if it was something negative that was going to happen to you, you wouldn't take that chance. Um, you know, so you, you think that that's a real possibility, but people don't understand how probabilities can happen. That's why I, I think – that's why I say somebody saying that there's a 4% chance of Trump winning or a 1% chance of Trump winning or a 10% chance of Trump winning, those are still pretty – every one of those is still a pretty decent chance of it happening in the real world and when infinite outcomes can happen. Okay, so, so I, that's I'm, why I don't think they're contributing that much. But for me, the reason why I won't put a number one is because there is uncertainty out there. We are looking at some polls um, where the race is close. This is why I'm, I'm waiting for Pennsylvania numbers to come in. If, 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 if these weekends, Pennsylvania numbers come in and Joe Biden has gained a couple of points and now he's ahead by on average seven, seven. or eight points, yeah. right? then we're outside of, the, of a normal poll margin of error. If uh, we're at a point where Donald Trump wins, only two things can be possible. Either the polls, polling is completely broken and, and the fixes that we had in 2018 that looked like they worked suddenly are not working anymore, or he cheated.
0: So now I get to this. So Trafalgar and Rasmussen polls. If you're looking at polls on Twitter, there are going to be moments where your Adam's apple falls down to your stomach if you're a man. <laughs> um, the Trafalgar and Rasmussen polls, which we have discussed before as right-leaning polls, you describe them as their clients. You know, they they work for the Republican Party in a way, and that they have they have uh, people who. Who are members of that? So it's 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 a directed thing. Now let's say that there was tampering in 2016, right? There were a couple of polls that were pointed to and said, "Look, no, 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 this poll had it." So this some people are saying that if Russia if Russia does interfere with the vote tally in 2020, um, if if there was interference, one would that explain the polling discrepancy that happened in 2016? And two, if they're planning for that to happen again, are they then setting up these polls? the Rasmussen and Trafalgar polls as something that they can point to, to say, no, 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 all the polls said this, but look at these pollsters who actually had it right. Because those polls are always so, they're outliers, as we discussed, talking about outliers back during the during the primary. So can you talk just a little bit more about Rasmussen and Trafalgar,
1: please? Yes. Yeah, so, I, and I mentioned Rasmussen before, I mean, their, their model, their business model is uh, subscribers. So they make their money off of people subscribing to their media content, which includes their polls. Um, and their subscribers are all conservative, all Trump supporters. So you give your subscribers what you want. So there's been a points where they've actually shown Trump trailing uh, in key places, but we're now seeing, as we get closer to election day, more positive news for Trump from that pollster um, and positive news that I'm sure pleases their um, they're subscribers. So if you're, if you're going to write a narrative, like, you know, a narrative arc for the story, mm-hmm. you know, so you start out really well, Trump's, and then you get to the point, Oh no, maybe he's not doing well. He's not doing well. Why, why is after showing Trump not doing well? And then suddenly he's doing well again and everybody's going ah oh, ha Yeah. Okay. You're right. Let's get a few more. Let me tell my friends to subscribe, uh, to Rasmussen, uh, Trafalgar. I'm not sure what their business model is, um. Exactly, but see, Trafalgar is the one that that has said, "Oh, we had Florida right. We had Pennsylvania right four years ago because they did." But the question is, did they have it right for the right reasons? I've seen a lot of pollsters out there get numbers right at the end, but when you when you dig into their 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 cross tabs, their 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 demographic groups, their subgroups, and they they just lucked out. They didn't really know what they were doing. But so can
0: will will the administration? be able to point to those polls is that part of their plan to say look no it's not you could look at Monmouth and YouGov and Ipsos and Marist and all these other polls that said Biden was winning but these two really knew what was going on which then accounts for if there is uh, I mean I hate to say that I mean it's awful to to suggest that you know that the the computers could be hacked but if that does indeed happen is that possible
1: would that be a plan for uh, for the administration. I think so, and we're seeing uh, more and more evidence of that. We've been seeing a lot of evidence about uh, you know, building distrust, fomenting distrust in the electoral process, and this is continuing. And that's why uh, I want to talk about you know, moving from polling. I want to talk about this in terms of the state of the republic. Let's do it. And where it's going. So I, I think, I don't know whether I mentioned on this show before, but I, I helped uh, John Dean, the former uh, Watergate figure, With a book that he wrote uh, called uh, Authoritarian Nightmare, Mm -hmm. Trump and His Followers. And he's written books about the authoritarian takeover of uh, the Republican Party and the leaders in the Republican Party. This book is actually about the people who follow and adhere to Trump and what that means. And uh, he wrote this with a psychologist uh, from Canada, a guy named Bob Altemeyer, who, who, who developed back in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, uh, a number of scales, including the right-wing authoritarian scale. And he wanted, they wanted to apply it to, uh, they, they haven't never tested it out on a large-scale representative sample of American voters. So I actually helped them out and did that with them. So, I mean, that book just came out, I think about a month ago. But this is what I'm concerned about is what you were bringing up about laying the groundwork for building distrust in the public because about 25 percent, 30 percent of the public are primed to be authoritarians with a heavy dose of racism thrown in there and that's just true that's always true that's always been true that will always be true it's a psychological factor that that we we're looking at the question is are they then given an outlet in which to act on those things? So in the past, you would you would tamp that down. Remember when back in the '60s, when the Republican Party uh, tried to distance itself, successfully distance itself from the uh, um, from the John Birch Society and these kinds of things, because and that's what our republic is built on. And this is kind of what your quote, your Washington quote at the top, uh, alludes to, is that. This only works when the leaders say that kind of behavior is unacceptable. Donald Trump has turned that on its head. And again, as we've discussed on this show many, many times, this has been 25 years in the making of eroding the foundations uh, on which we say this kind of behavior is unacceptable. This kind of authoritarianism is unacceptable. Is that done done, open the door for Donald Trump to come in and say, yes. Let's prepare the ground for this. So that's what you – so you've got these polls that they can point to. You All you need is like a, a quasi-factoid, like a factoid, a, a fake factoid, mm-hmm. but a quasi-factoid that you can point to and say, yeah, that's the truth. Now, granted, there are 999 other factoids that disagree with that, but here's the one factoid, and that's what we'll hook on. And, and Rasmussen
0: those- is putting out a poll every five minutes from
1: every right. state right. to
0: set that up.
1: So and then then we see, like, for example, there was a quote from uh, Donald Trump um, this morning about this uh, North Carolina.
0: Right. Oh, no. Go ahead. You do that one. I've got another one of his
1: uh, tweets. So so this. Yeah, it was this morning, uh, Friday morning about uh, the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court decision where where North Carolina is going to allow ballots to be counted that come in after Election Day, as long as they're postmarked by Election Day. Donald Trump is tweeting out this is unacceptable. How can they do this? And so basically what he's doing is getting his followers to believe that it is perfectly acceptable to not count valid votes that were cast by Election Day, that that is perfectly an acceptable fact now, that that is that is, in fact, supporting our Constitution by doing that. By not counting votes that were eligible cast, so this is this is that whole thing about turning reality on its head, and this is why what you said, you know, if the Russians interfere in a way that um, they actually interfere with the vote count, and and that is very much a real possibility. People are trying to ignore it because they don't want to they don't want to accept that that could potentially happen, but we know it can. The only thing that's good about the fact that this pandemic. And the fact that we're doing so much mail voting is that there'll be in many states, there'll be these huge paper trails of actual ballots so that when you do a recount, you're doing the recount by hand if we ever need to get to that point. Um, So that'll be something. But but if we do need to do a recount again, this gives Donald Trump that that long time period where you can start undermining trust in the system and and and. He's got a significant portion of the public, up to 25%, who are now primed to accept that and even act on that if he tells them that they need to go out. It's being taken away.
0: It's being stolen. And at 3 o'clock this morning, uh, the president of the United States at 3 a.m., 2.57 a.m., think about that, 2.57 a.m., wrote, If sleepy Joe Biden is actually elected president, the four justices plus one that helped make such a ridiculous win possible would be relegated to sitting on not only a heavily packed court, but probably a revolving court as well. At least the many new justices will be radical left exclamation mark. It is amazing that our president is doing that. I'm curious if a Supreme Court justice reads that and says Because if I were that Supreme Court justice, I would not appreciate that. I think that makes their job harder when that time comes to to make that vote. Um, And Brett Kavanaugh this week got a lot of uh, guff. Let's call it guff. Should we call it guff? Got a lot of guff for a decision that he passed down. I'm sorry, I don't remember what state it was. Um, Basically saying to stop the voting and that that all votes after. November third should not be counted, right? Yeah, this was the, of,
1: this was the Pennsylvania case, which actually he wrote a concurring opinion in that Pennsylvania case, and um, it it didn't it didn't pass because it was a tied vote because this was before uh, Barrett was on the court, so it was it was four to four, which meant his side, not neither side won, which which let Pennsylvania continue to do this. But yes, you're right, he gave an indication, but in then the later in the week another one came up, and you know what Kavanaugh did. He voted with the
0: liberal justices on that one. And what I think he was doing was sort of trying to take the heat off of him, because once the heat goes off of him there, he can then come back later. And, you know, it's I'm not in it for the president. I'm not I'm not. A partisan judge, I'm just doing it, you know, judging it as it goes. But then when push comes to shove, there's going to be a minute if it goes into overtime, if the election does go into overtime, and that's when you're
1: going to see a real problem, I think. Yeah, that's that second case. That's was the, the North, danger. The, the second case was the North Carolina case that I just mentioned, where the Supreme Court voted in a majority to allow the North Carolina to continue to uh, to accept these ballots. Yeah, and you're right. He did flip on that. And he, so caught, a lot of, he had caught a lot of guff. Guff? For, for for as you said, for that, uh, that concurring opinion that he wrote because people looked at it and said, what the hell are you saying there? You're saying that basically valid votes shouldn't be counted just because um, we should know the results by election day. There's nothing in the constitution that says you are required to know the results by election night. Right. No, it's, you, you, the implicit finding there is that you're supposed to count all the votes that were, were validly counted. And his, um, his concurring opinion just like really, I think there was a lot of legal legal people. You probably heard into you know privately from his uh, his colleagues right uh, in the legal profession. Like, what the hell are you saying? He also made some mistakes in there. Like in Vermont, like this, the Secretary of State of Vermont. Like, we so mentioned Vermont as a case study where they don't do this, and Vermont said, "Yes, we do do that. We did make <laughs> those changes change it. in order to do that." What the heck are you saying? And he made so he made a correction in his concurring opinion, and the Secretary of State of Vermont was still not happy with that. It was, did not satisfy.
0: Well, you know, I think we just cut out one of our hot takes, but let's let's move on now. Let's move on to our hot take segment. We're going to take 90 seconds to discuss some of the other topics that are currently in the news. And when you hear this sound, it's time to move on to the next one. So uh, first, Patrick, I'm going to give you uh, let's talk about Jeff Flake. What do you think about what Jeff Flake did this week coming out and endorsing Joe Biden?
1: So I don't know if you can find this video on uh, on YouTube on Twitter, YouTube, wherever. So Jeff Flake came out and said, you know, he's putting country first and voting for uh, Joe Biden. And And it's, you know, it's one of those interesting videos. It would have been nice if he had done that as a sitting senator, if he stayed in the field. And that was one of the things that we've been talking about with Jeff Flake all along is that, you know, he made a lot of these rumblings while he was a senator, but always, you know, left the field to play. He always whiffed when he was up at bat. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think this is a nice move and great for him, but uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot more to say about it other than that. What do you think about? Well,
0: it? I, I think it I think it's more than a nice move. I think that it shows that Jeff Flake is a man of honor. Um, he did fight President Trump while he was in office, which then cost him his seat uh, in Arizona. And I I think that it's what we're going to need more of as we move forward in this country. I mean, there's going to be, there are going to be critical moments. And as I spoke about last week about, um, uh, ben Sass about the fact that him being a sitting senator, being able to stand up during a time and be able to say no, it's over. Joe Biden is the winner. Mitt Romney, I imagine, would do would do similarly. Um, Lisa Murkowski might, and Susan Collins might. That that that's going to be something that's very very important uh, for the state of our republic. I would say, wouldn't you? Okay. Yep. I think so. All right. All so right. The next one. So now we're moving on to Jeremy. Corbyn, who was suspended from the Labor Party for uh, anti-Semitism, quote, anti-Semitism or maybe anti-Semitism. Do you have any thoughts
1: on Jeremy Corbyn? Yes. I, well, one of our favorite, uh, my favorite um, segments of our show back in uh, the spring was talking yes. about Brexit when we went across that. So I'm glad we got a little chance to go here again. I did, I did um, enjoy but, that. The yes. Speaker of House So, a- So yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, the reason why the Labor Party lost in, in basically a landslide to Boris Johnson and the conservatives uh, last year, uh, because he was such a horrible leader, and and there were these charges of anti-Semitism, and he's just not taking it seriously. So good for uh, Keir Starmer, who is the current head of the Labour Party, there for you know showing some leadership and saying you know either you accept that you did something wrong, and if you don't, get out of the party.
0: You know, I'm surprised that it's taken this long. I mean, what what an absolute shellacking the Labour Party received in uh, in England. Uh, back when when it was all going down and Brexit. And and a, a huge win for Boris Johnson at that time. I have not been keeping up with the House of Commons in the way that I did. I mean, what was, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking on the name of the speaker that I love so dearly. You're gonna say it and I'm gonna cry. Uh, what uh, John, Burk Bur- Bur- Burk Burkow Burkow. Burkow Burkow John Burkow. Burkow yeah. I, I will I do yeah. want to say to you, if you have not yet, even though his name isn't that memorable, please go on YouTube and go John Burkow best of and watch uh you know government in action in kind of the best possible way. It was really uh some Very of the some of was fun. Yes, yeah, super
1: fun. Okay. All right. Next one. Next one. I, I, I stepped on what we're going to do next. So I'm going to skip ahead mm-hmm. and ask you to talk about um, this comment that uh, that uh, Trump made in, in the debate about being the least racist person in the room. And uh, Joe Biden had a response to this. And so what do you what's your thinking on where this is going right now? OK, so
0: I have two very smart brothers. I have a very smart younger brother who I talk to all the time. I have a very smart older brother who I talk to all the time and they both listen to the show and they enjoy it, which makes me very happy. So my older brother. Uh, brought up this idea of Trump talking about being the least racist person in the room, and quoted Margaret Brennan from Face the Nation, and this is what was said. And I found it fascinating when my brother said it to me, and I'm happy to share it with you. Is that many people in the Midwest take very personally this idea that they're racist people who they are uh, people who live in homogeneous areas, as we were discussing earlier, and this idea that they're being accused of being racist all the time. So Donald Trump saying, I am the least racist person in this room, (laughs) which to many people on the left, people found just absolutely shocking. Like, why would you say something like that? It is a signal, what Margaret Brennan was saying, is that it's a signal to those Midwestern voters that I, too, am being accused of things that
1: aren't true. What do you think of that? Um, yeah, I think that's right because that they are really uh, are uh, yes, they're very very defensive about that. I, I know that from our polling that they're they're very defensive about that. And I know that from the stuff that I've done with John Dean that authoritarian that that is a key component of it that they that these folks are racist uh, who are racist and don't believe that they are plus those who aren't as racist but you know, still feel that they're being thrown lumped into that. And we actually saw this in in Maine with um, uh, Susan Collins is now doing, um, uh, using that as kind of a, a, a talking point where she's saying that we, uh, we're not, there's racism, isn't a problem in Maine kind of, and I think she's trying to send that same signal there. Yeah. yeah All right. So let's, um, uh, we went over a little bit. So let's go to our next one here. You wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, we talked a little bit about Russian interference, but you want to talk a little bit more about what could potentially happen in a breakdown of the election.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the the question really, we're going to be on the other side of this, and I, I think both of our plan is to be back here next Friday to do another episode, certainly to talk about what happened with the election. But November 4th is going to be an extraordinary day because maybe the election will be over, but likely it will not, right? They, maybe it will. I mean, I, maybe it's 50-50 that the election will be over. If it's not, the machinations that Trump has in his uh, – quill i don't think it's quill but he he can do a lot of stuff there's a lot of stuff that he can do and that foreign actors can also do also biden might win florida and then all the fears that we have about what's going to happen post-election it becomes a y2k situation where we have all these fears about how things are going to blow up but the downside is huge there's this article in the times uh called the day after election day that i read right before we did the show um that talks about possible um Proud Boys intervention. In different states, where what happens in Pennsylvania if there is a shootout at a polling station in 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 a in a far in a in a really blue area? You know, these things can happen. What if it happens in a, in a red state? You know, there's just so many different things that are going that that are possible to happen that you just got to pray that we get through the election. I mean, I think that's that's kind you, of what yeah. I'd
1: the thought possibility of off-duty police officers. This happened back in 1981, showing up in in uniforms with some sort of uh, Indication that they are part of the national ballot security task force and asking voters for ID and all sorts of things. These are real possibilities.
0: Yeah. So uh, these are. Look, I think we're all feeling that sense of anxiety about what's going on in our country, and uh, let's hope that when we come back next Friday, there's more um, quiet in all of us. Now, this is maybe becoming one of my favorite parts of the show. It's time to bring Justin on for ninety seconds. Uh, Justin, do you have any thoughts so far about what uh, about the show today? I mean, I think the show is great. It's always, always is great. I don't mean that. I, mean, like, uh, I... Where We are in the country. <laughs> that That's what I'm talking about. Like what you heard today as a registered Republican uh, who is our producer. And we're lucky to have you. You know, I can't get past this overwhelming fear of what will or could happen next week. I think uh, a lot of people uh, who were not wanting Trump to win in 2016 had this uh, confidence going into Election Day, uh, and then the, the wind was just let out of their sails uh, when Trump won. And so I just have this overwhelming fear, and, and, and Patrick's words helped put me at ease a little bit, but it's still there, and I think it will be there until we have a good decision. Yeah, I, I actually I was I was trying to listen to you, Patrick, today from the perspective of our listeners. Right. And trying to think. And you did a good job today of sort of bringing us <laughs> to, you know, I, I thought I said to you right before the show, I was like, this is about as uh, anxiety filled that I've ever felt going into one of our mm-hmm. shows. And, you know, your your call for a deep breath. Was, uh, was very well received. Thank you, Justin, as always. So now let's move on to our Guardian of the Week. This is uh, where we sort of bring up someone or a group of people as we're going to today and talk about how they are helping to keep our republic strong. Patrick, you made a nomination this week. Would you like to tell us who it is? This, uh,
1: the Guardian of the Week is the American voter. Over 80 million of you have already done your duty Um, We estimate that maybe another 80 million or possibly more will do it by Tuesday. Um, And that is what makes this work, is our belief in the system, our belief in our participation in the system. And it looks like a record number of Americans are going to take that responsibility seriously this year. And... While we've mentioned a number of things this week that we think could go wrong and could undermine the credibility of the institution, the fact that a record number of Americans are going out there and saying my vote matters is one very big positive thing to take away this week.
0: Absolutely. I think uh, I spoke to a, a friend of mine this morning who was very idealistic and very hopeful about what's going on saying that what president trump has done is woken up the bear of the american electorate and that maybe just maybe this will be how we move forward as a country and i'm going to say this i wasn't planning to say this but i'm gonna I Remember the night of the election, I was uh, heading down to. I was I, I was. I was very lucky. I was invited to Tim Kaine's party because uh, one of Tim Kaine's donors. I, he was a fan of Turn. It, it. It all was very nice. And I was home in our old house, and listening and watching and seeing that Donald Trump was going to win. And it was about 10:30 at night. And my wife Nicole said to me, uh, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to put on my suit." She said, "Why?" I said, "Because you go when when you lose." You know, if he won, if if she won, I could stay home and drink champagne with you. But now I got to go and be with the people who were fighting it out. On my drive down an Uber on the highway, there was a piece that came over me where I thought to myself, you know, maybe this one day we'll look back on as the turning point in a positive way for our nation. That maybe things aren't going great, as good as we think that they are. Maybe the trajectory isn't good for everybody in the way that it could be, and maybe this is exactly what this country needs. Four years of this. Now I could be. Sometimes I think to myself, "You're dead wrong. This is nothing. Nothing good here." But the hope is that if Joe Biden can get elected, and I'm speaking from a personal perspective here, that maybe, maybe we can be a country that takes care of everyone where everyone does have a voice and uses that voice and that maybe this will bring our country together in a way that if we had just gone with the status quo, it never would have. So that's my hope. And, uh, I, I back your guardian of the week this week for the American voter. I'm proud to be one of them. And, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to, to live in this country.
1: Um, yeah, that's it. All right. And on that note, happy election day, everybody. And that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any comments or thoughts for the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please remember to subscribe or resubscribe to get the latest episodes
0: on your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends and family so others can find us. And if you want to catch up on some of our past episodes, check out our website at guardians-republic.com.
1: Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode after the election.
0: See ya. Thank you, Justin.